most teachers probably have a set of questions that they uh, pose to their students when they first meet them. One of them is generally, you know, what kind of music do you like? By far, the most common answer that I get to that question is, well, I, I don't know. I really like all kinds of music except for country and rap. And, you know, when I think about it, when I was, when I was a lot younger, I might have fallen into that category myself. So I picked up guitar when I was uh, 16 or 17 years old and was really into it and decided to go to school for music and I studied jazz at UNH. And uh, I definitely, you know, had an idea of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to play. You know, I wanted to be a jazz musician touring the world or, um, or in a funk group. I really liked that kind of music as well. And at the time, I was playing with some few different bands, doing some, some funk music, some instrumental funk music, and um, some jam band stuff, very Grateful Dead, Fish-esque. That's kind of what I was into. But I never would have seen myself performing in a hip hop band. Take it back to the days of paint a cap brim up. Oversized keys with that front buckle tuck. I had some friends that I'd been playing music with, playing jazz and uh, you know, various projects. And they were starting a new project. And uh, I wasn't really sure what it was, but they invited me over just to hang out and listen at one of my friend's apartments. And I was probably, I guess, 24 at the time. And uh, I went over and it was it was a hip hop project, uh, a live hip hop project. And they had three MCs, these guys I hadn't met before, and uh, they were doing their rehearsal, and I was just hanging out and, and listening. And you know, within a few minutes, I realized that there was something special there, that they had something unique, especially especially for this area uh, in New Hampshire. wasn't a lot of hip-hop going on and never mind I guess good hip-hop but these guys were all very talented and I immediately knew that I wanted to be part of the band despite the fact that hip-hop wasn't really my thing you know I didn't tell them that of course and uh, they were pretty dead set on not having a guitar player in the band they had a keyboard player and they had this sound that they were that they were going for kind of uh, like the roots I guess Although the Roots had a guitar player. I don't know. So I just nagged them and I nagged them and I nagged them. The bass player was one of my best friends and I just wouldn't let it let it go. And finally they gave in and they said, okay, fine, you can be in the band. We have a show this Friday night. Just come. And I was like, well, I don't know any of the music. They said, well, do you want to be in the band? I said, okay, yeah. So I, I just showed up and set up my amp next to the piano player and you know before every song I would just look at him quietly and be like, hey man what keys is this in? Um, and he'd tell me and I would do my very best to create a part on the spot and make it seem like I wasn't creating a part on the spot which is not the easiest thing as it turns out to do but it is a good skill to have kind of fake it till you make it type of thing but I guess the moral of the story is that um, I find, uh, as a musician, I guess as a human being in general, uh, you want to be open-minded, and you want to allow yourself to 
be exposed to new things that you may not even think are, are your thing. Um, you know, by joining this band, I was able to play shows that, for thousands of people. We actually gained some notoriety and we, we did some tours and we were able to open up for acts that were some of my favorite bands at the time and still are. Bands like Soul Live and uh, Parliament Funkadelic, Robert Randolph. We went on tour uh, down the, uh, the East Coast with um, a rap icon uh, named Slick Rick, something I never thought I would have done. Those of you who are of a certain age, you may know him, but um, Lottie Dottie, we like to potty. Don't cause me trouble, don't bother nobody. And that's the, that's the lyric, you can look it up. He's legit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's my story. And I think that, you know, I never thought I would have would have been in a band like that. And, and by doing so, I, as I said, I was able to uh, have a lot of great experiences, meet a lot of new people, and, and learn how to be a better musician and put on a show. And it was all just because I you know, wanted to try something new. And I think that's very important as a musician. Uh, keep an open mind and give it a shot. That was PMAC guitar instructor Jim Dozette talking about how sometimes as a musician we end up in places we might not expect. For example, playing in a hip-hop band up and down the East Coast when you didn't think that was your thing. My name's Russ Grazier, and welcome to Sound in Color, the PMAC podcast. This is our seventh and final podcast of our first season. We will be back, but we won't be back until fall of 2017. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to the backlog of episodes going back to episode one, enjoy your summer listening to our previous episodes. And if you get a chance, put a review up on iTunes for us. It really helps us in the ratings, and we'd appreciate your feedback. On today's podcast, we have New York jazz trumpeter Dave Douglas, who visited PMAC from New York City recently and spent some time with our teen jazz ensemble. And he also did some performances with Chris Claxton's Our Big Band, including performances at 3S Art Space here in Portsmouth. Dave sat down with me for a conversation about jazz music and uh, reminisced a little bit about his early years in the Seacoast area when he attended Phillips Exeter Academy and how the late, great Seacoast jazz pianist Tommy Gallant played an important role in his formative years. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So this morning, we have Dave Douglas with us here at PMAC. Dave's been on a residency over the past few days here in the Seacoast area. Uh, last night, you played up in Portland, Maine at The Space, mm-hmm. and uh, on Friday night at 3S Art Space. And after we get done with this quick little interview, uh, we're going to go into Haas Hall here at PMAC and do a workshop with our youth jazz group, the teen jazz group, and actually some alumni have come. So welcome to Portsmouth, Dave. Is this your first time here? No, it's not. But You're from thanks the area, for having right? me. 
well, I'm not from the area, but I went to Phillips Exeter in high school. Okay. And so I was over there my junior year. I did a year abroad in Barcelona, which changed my life. But Exeter was a, was a big, important thing for me. And did you play a lot of music when you were at Exeter? A lot, yeah. And there was a great teacher named Tommy Gallant, who you probably knew. Uh, piano so player. I knew Tommy very well. Yeah. Um, Tommy, actually, when my wife and I uh, were married... Uh, we had Tommy's band play at our reception. Great. And and one of my great memories is that uh, he said, well, what do you want us to play? What type of music? Do you have a song list? And I said, play what you guys love to play as long as people can dance. Uh-huh. And they ha- played for two and a half hours, I think, and did this great uh, set of dance music, a couple sets. And at the end, they were so appreciative because they just picked what they wanted to play. And because mm-hmm. of the, the music was so energetic right. and so much fun, uh, but my other Tommy Gallant story, and I want to hear your Tommy Gallant story, but <laughs> my other Tommy Gallant story was he was the first person I ever played on a pro bandstand with when I was 16. Um, he used to have a Sunday night gig at the press room here in Portsmouth that mm-hmm. he did for years. And uh, I used to go with my father on Sundays to hear all the artists coming through town. My dad would bring me down. And I was going to go to Sims at UNH, and I needed to get a recording for a scholarship application. And I had told Tommy this during a break one night and he said bring your saxophone down next week bring your recording equipment we're going to play so I opened the set the following week and recorded a couple tunes with him and Jim and Les Senior and he was just such a kind giving musician you know what's what's your memory he was great well I mean I was working with him when I was 14 15 and you know I didn't realize till later how special that was Mm -hmm. yeah all the information that he gave me and the welcome. I mean, PEA can be a pretty strict place. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, pushing against the boundaries of, of what one was allowed to do there. And uh-huh. whenever I would get into a class with him, I just felt like this is where I'm comfortable. That's amazing. Talking about music, playing music. There was no, I, I think, you know, I was pretty driven. Mm-hmm. So for him, it was probably fun too to have a kid come in and, you know, be showing him Herbie Hancock records and yep. Bill Evans records and working on standards. And um, uh, it was something really special. And the lessons that he gave me about how to think about jazz voicings and chord movement and mm-hmm. tunes, you know, that still stays with me. That's a profound uh, effect that I think he had on not only a lot of students but the entire region you know seacoast area like everybody i talk to up here definitely has some kind of influence and so you know to be here talking to you on the podcast at pmac yep i think that education in any arts but in music and improvisation in particular you know it's such a powerful thing for young people and they should be exposed to it, and they're open to it. And in so many communities, it's just not happening anymore. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that we feel allows a place like PMAC in our community to be so strong is that there's strong support for the music within the school system. Mm. And it was interesting when we started a school like this that um, some people had this perspective that, oh, you can do this better than the school can, or if the school can't 
do it, you can do it, which is such a misinformed approach. Um, I, I believe that the communities that have really strong supported community school programs in the public schools tend to give birth to places like PMAC and have them in their community because the community has such a belief in the arts. And we're very lucky here in Portsmouth to have that type of community. I know there are places probably where the, a void is filled by a, a community music school, but I think that symbiotic relationship between the schools and a community center can be really fruitful for young musicians. Absolutely. Uh, I think it also needs to be remarked that there's usually a few great, inspired, persevering individuals yes. in the community that make that happen, whether it's in the school or in the after school or in an independent organization. I mean, it really, somebody has to decide, yes, this is important and, and really, you know, put their shoulder to the wheel and get the thing moving. And, and that is wonderful. And actually, when you see the success of a program like that, Everybody else in the community starts to buy in because they go, oh, yes. you know, we have the best band in the region. Oh, totally. And you got to work with one of those inspired, really driven individuals this past week, Chris Claxton, who's on the yeah. faculty. Yeah. Uh, Chris is quite remarkable, I think. And and I've it's always been a joy to make music with him, to play with him, but also to get inside of his head about how he approaches even uh, programming a weekend like this. So you came mm -hmm. to town and... Uh, Chris's vision was not let's get Dave Douglas to come to town and play a gig. Chris's, Chris's vision was let's get Dave Douglas to come to town and maybe play some music that he doesn't get a chance to play all the time with a big band and also bring him around to the local schools, both the colleges and the community center, and have him interact, have you interact with the students in the area. And, and what's that experience been like for you? Well, you know, speaking as an artist who travels around the world and is also involved in education and, and composition. And I run a music company called Greenleaf Music that releases all my albums and sheet music and my podcast. And um, I run an independent uh, nonprofit trumpet festival in New York for new emerging artists. And, and um, I have to say that this model, the way Chris approached it, is sort of the way that I prefer to work. Because mm -hmm. I think if I go to an interesting part of the country and I don't get to meet anybody, I mean, they, you know, yep. I meet them at the shows and I yep. always go out after the concert and, oh, definitely. and talk to people and see what people are talking about. But I think that, um, you know, to have an interaction, not just with students, but with the people who are operating these kinds of programs, mm -hmm. you know, that's really enriching for me. And um, I teach composition and improvisation and musical citizenship yeah. uh, from the perspective of every time I talk about this, I have to learn something new. Oh, of course. That's like wonderful. There's a selfish interest uh -huh. in there because you never stop growing as an artist. And right. so anything that I say to a bunch of young musicians has to be something that I reconsider in my own mm -hmm. work. Um, the music that you've been playing this week, the mm -hmm. uh, the big band arrangements that you've been working with, do you get to take those out that often and, and play them? Or, or what, what are the typical scenarios where you do get to play that type of music? Because it's unusual to have a big band, I think, these days. It's unusual to have a big band. And when I started writing for big band, I never, I, my goal was to not have a big band. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a thankless task. It's a lot of organizing. Yeah. It's a lot of people. 
It's very difficult from a resources standpoint mm-hmm. to put it together. Yep. Um, and it's a really unique format. I mean, I, I for years never wrote for big band because big band is like, um, well, you could say, you know, for me, quintet, trumpet, tenor sax, piano, mm-hmm. bass, and drums. Yep. It's like for a classical composer writing for string quartet. Yes. It's just, that's your home base, yep. and that's where you, for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. For me, that's what I've found. Mm-hmm. I constantly come back to that format. So big band would be like writing for a symphony orchestra yep. or a classical play. Oh, exactly. And, it's, and it's, it's not just a bunch of people. It's like a very specific that's combination right. of instruments and numbers of instruments mm-hmm. and different chairs. And even within a trumpet section, each chair, one through four, has a different sort of personality associated with uh-huh. it. So to get into that is, is really something special. And, and when I did, I, I really enjoyed it. I learn every time out. Um, I'm usually performing it in like this in places where I've been invited to come in yep. and, and bring charts. Um, and I'm, I'm expanding the book right now. We just and brought so, a new chart this week. Well, right. As a result of the invitation from Chris Claxton, I wrote, I started writing a few new pieces and I and brought I, two of I them. If I remember correctly, one is called Self-Portrait in Four Dimensions. Is that right? It's an ode to Charles Mingus. An know. ode to Charles Mingus, who, of course, uh, led his own big band and um, and often recorded with more than just a quintet. Um, how, how did Mingus impact you or, or when did you first come in contact with Mingus? Oh, geez, I don't even remember. Uh, you know, um, first of all, just the title of the piece. Yep, yep. Mingus has a, one of my favorite compositions of his is called Self-Portrait in Three Colors. And it's, it's, if you get a chance to hear it, it's, um, it, it's basically like an additive. They, they go through this melody three times and each time there's an additional voice mm-hmm. that gets added. So by the end, you have all this counterpoint happening. And it's just such a simple but beautiful way mm-hmm. of working. So um, going from that inspiration, I sort of, I'm, I'm, I, I think one of the things that I love about Mingus was the freedom within the band. Yep. That the players weren't just playing parts. I mean, part of it was that Mingus always insisted on teaching his music by ear. Yeah. Uh, he would make people, you know, learn it from him singing or playing piano. The, well, the or sound bass. of his band was so different than anyone yeah. had ever heard from a big band before. So free and dramatic. open, and I'm inspired by that, and I'm 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 really looking to achieve that um, as much as possible. Uh, so the way that I'm writing these new pieces is it's it's in a notation that allows a lot more freedom within mm-hmm. the band, and every player has to be aware where they are and make choices based on that. Um, it looks sometimes like so when you I were felt, conducting, like you were making choices in the moment that then the band had to coordinate on, um, especially backing solos and things like that. And and very yeah. careful, um, this very careful connection between conductor and the musicians as if you were playing a 20-piece instrument as a conductor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. And also... Um, you know, the four dimensions thing came because, you know, we all know, or at least in my rudimentary understanding of science, mm-hmm. the fourth dimension is time. Yes. And so the way that the flow of time works in that piece is kind of unique and unusual. And so oh. that, that led me to the title. 
Oh, that's wonderful. The piece you opened with, I know most familiar, or I'm most familiar with it as the the melody from Sibelius's Finlandia. That's right. You and know. and when we play, we played that at the Pori Jazz Festival in Finland. Oh, okay. And we started playing the melody, and the entire audience stood they up. They stand up and start singing <laughs> yeah. with you. <laughs> I was like, what are they? Are they leaving? And oh, it's then the I national realized anthem, right? It's, yeah. Well, it's the unofficial sort of national anthem. The unofficial anthem. one, yeah. 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 Which I sort of stupidly was unaware of, but <laughs> they were really, really happy. That's wonderful. And it's um, it's on that album that's called Be Still, and Aoife O'Donovan is singing it. And uh, It was a beautiful piece, and Taylor O'Donnell sang with you this week. Taylor she's, O'Donnell. She's wonderful. She did a great job. That's great. And you also worked with Taylor on a hymn, mm -hmm. and um, it, you spoke very eloquently about um, playing hymns at your mother's service when she passed mm -hmm. and how important that was to you and how you connect differently with the music today than you might have learning them the first time as you were growing up mm -hmm. as a child. This is a topic that's really fascinating to me about how we learn some pieces very early in our lives and they stay with us mm -hmm. and the meaning evolves throughout our life lifetime. Um, what was that experience like for you with the hymns in particular? Well, I just found I had to come up with a new approach to them. I, I couldn't do them the way that I sang them mm -hmm. as a child. Yep. And um, like you said, as you go through life, you have experiences and things grow and change, and then you need to approach things differently. I, I couldn't do um, God be with you till we meet again you know, the way I heard it on TV when yep. I was six years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, so working on new arrangements was interesting. I mean, there's a funny story if I if we have time. Oh, yeah, to, yeah, definitely. Well, when I first was working on the hymns, I, at a time I had a band called Brass Ecstasy mm -hmm. that was sort of dedicated to Lester Bowie. Okay. The trumpeter who yep. had had a band called Brass Fantasy where he played pop music and mm -hmm. You know Whitney Houston and oh, yeah. really un unlikely covers yeah. with this brass orchestra. So mine was a quintet called Brass Ecstasy, and my first thought was, okay, I'll arrange these hymns for this brass group. It'll be really beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. So my first arrangements of the hymn was for Brass Ecstasy and congregational singing. Mm -hmm. My mother was in the congregational church, and so I was thinking, okay, the brass will play one time through the hymn, and then the congregation will come in, and uh -huh. the tuba will be accompanying, and we had an organist. Oh, wonderful. was in a church, and it was very beautiful. Um, and luckily, we, <laughs> we did a quote-unquote sound check where we go through this with the organist and uh -huh. some of the people from the church, and we get to the top where the voices are coming, and they're all just standing there with their jaws on the floor. Like they had no idea where, you know, it was just, I, I was hitting at a level of yeah. complexity that was not suited to a congregation. Mm -hmm. of sing So I backed off the arrangements a little bit, and uh -huh. we had the service, and it was great, and there were some awkward moments, but it was all beautiful yeah. and fun, and everyone was happy. I mean, I, I who knows, I think.
you know, it's amazing. Hymns make music such a communal experience. And that's that was my yeah, thinking. Exactly. Um, but it was interesting because after that experience, I thought, okay, how would I record these hymns? And some mm -hmm. months went by where I was toying with them and I, I was forming this new quintet at mm -hmm. that time with John Arabigan and mm -hmm. Matt Mitchell, Linda O, oh, and Rudy Royston. Um, and just by coincidence, I was invited to this collaboration of uh, bluegrass musicians and jazz musicians mm -hmm. in Colorado. And that's where Aoife O'Donovan was and we were playing some of her music and some of uh -huh. my music and some people like Greg Garrison and John Gunther yep. and uh, Matt Flinner, the great mandolinist. And Aoife is such a great, as you heard on the records, mm -hmm. a beautiful singer. And so we were just talking on the side and I said, you know, I'm really struggling trying to do these hymns. And she said, oh, I love those hymns. That's where I grew up. You know, that's, that's my home base. Mm-hmm. So we started, you know, and then that became, I was like, okay, it's going to be my quintet with Aoife as a guest. Oh, fabulous. Know? And that's how the whole thing came about. Wonderful. Um, I have a question that I ask all of our guests, which is, um, I ask it two different ways, and it's two very different questions if you take it either way. But one way to ask the question is, is there any advice that you would give a young person who's going to pursue a career in music, whether it's jazz trumpet or in music in general? Um, and the other way to ask it, which is kind of different, is is there any advice that you wish you had had when you were younger that you'd love to give to a young and aspiring musician that oh. might make a difference? Yeah, those are two very different They are, questions. aren't they? You know, and, and the last person I spoke to pointed that out, and I'm going to have mm -hmm. to make a decision on which one I'm going to ask each time I speak with someone. But um, Well, I, yeah. I, I would say, well, first of all, the first question is geared maybe towards an older student, and mm -hmm. the, first quest, the second question maybe more towards somebody younger. But I would, I would say maybe it's two sides of a coin. Mm -hmm. So... From the career standpoint, my advice is always to diversify your talents. Work on a lot of different things. Don't assume that life is going to lead you in any one particular direction. And be aware that most musicians who survive being professional musicians do a lot of different things. That's Composing great Composing and teaching and publishing and performing and recording and these days all the computer sciences yep. there's a lot of support jobs in the music industry well support jobs is the wrong word mm -hmm. equal jobs yeah, yeah that are important and you know maybe a little behind the scenes sometimes but mm -hmm. um all those things are great if you're a great web designer yeah if you're a great social media adept Yes. If you're a great Pro Tools engineer, all of that stuff is central to what's happening in, in the industry now. So Definitely. that would be my answer for that. And mm -hmm. then the other side of the coin is um, there's no substitute for working on your music and making it better every day of your life. And that sounds like a cliche coming out of my mouth, but I really feel like with all of this thought of career and business and social media, it's important not to lose sight of the fact that it's really the quality of the music itself that's going to drive your life and what you do. Totally. So that's practice. Wonderful advice.
Thank you so much for taking some time to sit down with Thank us you. today. And Great. I'm looking forward to going in the other room now and meeting with all the kids and uh, hearing what you have to say to them. So thank you so much. Uh, try to cross post this at A Noise from the Deep. Oh, that would be podcast. wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to it. All right. All right. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Sound in Color, the PMAC podcast. On today's episode, you heard Soundscape Finesse by The Press Project featuring Ioka, and that is actually the hip-hop band that Jim Dozette played in. He's on that recording, and he toured with them down the East Coast earlier in his career. You also heard God Be With You, an arrangement of a classic hymn by Dave Douglas. Sound and Color is produced by Pip Clues with executive producer Jennifer Minicucci. It is a project of the Portsmouth Music and Arts Center Community Music and Visual Arts School in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I'm your host, Russ Grazier. Thank you so much for joining us this season. We will be back in September of 2017, but check out our backlog of episodes if you haven't had a chance to hear them all, and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Spin.